Like Messi is not replicable. Like there is no next Messi. And so you can't really like match what Miami has done. The relevance that he's brought is higher than I expected it. He is making people tune in at a much higher clip than I think anyone expected. And I think it's going to keep getting bigger if he keeps doing this. Hello, everybody. Welcome into Offside with yours truly, Taylor Twelman. Now, the plan when I launched this podcast was to not be a messy show. And like Messi's done with everybody else, he's completely flipped the entire world of Major League Soccer and American soccer on its head. And I just came from Dallas. What he did in Dallas is insane. I've never seen anything like it in my life. Down 3-1, down 4-2. He's got FC Dallas scoring own goals. He's going to clip it. And then the free kick at the end of the game, they win on penalties. If he scores, it's over and Miami is through. He does! The 18-year-old winning the shootout, Lionel Messi's Miami story continues! They play Friday night against Charlotte. Charlotte, hang on! And book a quarterfinal date with Lionel Messi and Miami on Friday night. Where everybody, including myself, thought they would not be. Well, that's where they are. So this wasn't supposed to be a messy show. However, it has to be part of the conversation. And that's kind of where I want to take today's show, right? We've got the Athletics' Paul Tenorio. He's been with me on the craziness of Messi's first road trip to Dallas, staying with the Athletic. We got Meg Linehan. She's going to help me try to understand what the hell happened to the women in Australia and where do they go from there. But first off, Paul Tenorio. All right, naturally, I promised you it's not going to be a messy show, but it has to be a messy show right now because he has set the League's Cup ablaze to start his inner Miami and Major League Soccer career. Now, this was his first road game, the road game where the circus goes on the road, expect the unexpected, except Messi scores twice. The first one, it was his fastest goal to start a game. Leaving it for Jordi Alba. Then the second one, the most important one, the one that everyone thought, wait a minute, the free kick against Cruz Azul, he's going to outdo that? Guys, he did. He did exactly that. A free kick to tie the game 4-4 in the 84th minute. Messi up over Sensational from Lionel Messi again. 4-4. Now that's four games. Messi has scored seven times. He leads the team in goals with Joseph Martinez in all competitions. And the rest of the team had a 22-game head start. But it's Messi. So it is kind of expect the unexpected. Now he's performing at a high level. We get that. He just won the World Cup six months ago for Argentina. and He was 35 years old. But he's exceeding even his expectations. The fact that Inter-Miami are just two wins away from the League's Cup final? You can't make this stuff up. So today, I want to bring on Paul Tenorio of The Athletic. He's been there along the way. He's been following Messi in Fort Lauderdale, but now he's followed Messi to Dallas. Paul, I don't know how to describe to anyone that's listening what Dallas was like, but just 
your night in Dallas with Messi and Inner Miami. Just describe to us what it was like. Yeah, it's one of those assignments that you're like, all right, I'm just going to sit at a hotel bar and I get to expense it and let's see how this goes, <laughs> right? No, it was it was interesting because there are aspects that have changed in MLS that have make Messi's roadshow different than what happened for Beckham, right? Like, we're on charter planes now. Not yes. we. They're on charter planes now. Yeah, you and, and I aren't. <laughs> but yeah, this is, oh, uh, you know, the status isn't hurt by all these messy road trips. But yeah, it's not a charter flight. Um, you know, with Kaka, when he was there, I remember in Orlando, there used to be autograph seekers in the baggage claim areas waiting for them because they were flying commercial. That's That stuff's gone. But when I showed up at the hotel and it was right as the team bus was coming in, at, at the time, there were like 15 people there. The, the the people who had gotten the early word that Messi was going to stay there, a couple of people who just guessed, let's go to one of the nice hotels in the area and hope we're at the right one. One of the guys I talked to, his buddy was a delivery driver and had come to the same delivery entrance and was, saw all the setup, and that's how he got his heads up. What was crazy, though, was as the night unfolded, as time went on, word of mouth, like all these fans would show up, then they'd text oh, their yeah. friends from Argentina. and So 5 p.m., 15 people, 6 p.m., 25 7 p.m., 55, first sweep of hotel security comes through. They're looking for key cards. I'm like, I better get closer to the bar. So at least they know I'm spending money here. And 8 p.m., 9 p.m., like the crowd didn't disperse. There were a lot of people there. And that's what it's going to be like on the road yep. for Inner Miami now to have 50, 60, 70 people milling about the lobby, hoping to get a glimpse of Messi, not getting a glimpse of Messi, because guess what? He's not coming down to the hotel lobby. OK, they got security entrances. They've got service elevators. They got security on every floor. But, you know, guys like DeAndre Yedlin, Drake Callender, Robert Taylor, who wanted to pop out of the hotel for a, <laughs> a, a meal and come back through, they're getting stopped like, you know, they're Barcelona players and taking pictures and signing autographs. So that part of it was really interesting. And then getting to the stadium a few hours before, it was kind of fun to see like the FC Dallas, the Toyota Stadium security going through the paces. Like they had them running testing him on on could they catch a pitch invader Paul, they've never had to do this <laughs> i felt so bad it was 105 degrees real feel 113 and these security guards are sprinting to the middle of the field this is this is what it's going to be like you have to be ready for a different approach when messi's in town and what we saw in Dallas, I think, is going to be replicated at other stadiums and other cities around the country. Probably easier in some places. You know, Toyota Absolutely. Stadium is one of the older stadiums in the in the league. It's not yeah. as set up for kind of these celebrity moments. LAFC definitely is. Atlanta is an NFL stadium. Charlotte's an NFL stadium. They'll have the infrastructure a little bit better, but it was quite the experience. And yeah, I thought it was really fun to just kind of hang in the hotel lobby and just see how many people that wanted to see Messi and definitely a lot of Argentina jerseys more than usual in that hotel lobby. It is kind of fun, isn't it? It is, it is kind fun. of one of these weird things where you're like, is it really going on? It's, it's a level. Yeah, it's surreal. It's still surreal. Like, okay, so I was leaving the press box to go to the post game and I was with my buddy, John Arnold, who does great work, but he's based in Dallas. So he knows like the quick ways out. Right. <laughs> so we go down through the suite level. And so I bump into Jorge Mas, David Beckham, Jose Mas. I say hello, of course. And I walk out and he's showing me like the fastest way out. Well, it turns out we're walking out the same exit that Beckham is. And, and so I was in the right place, right time. Thanks to John Arnold. Shouts to him. And he's coming down this stairwell into the concourse where all the fans are. And I'm like, what is happening? How is this the best exit for him? 
And in the midst of it all, I just think to like the last two weeks of Fort Lauderdale coming into the loading dock and like getting moved by security to allow David and Victoria to walk by you into their waiting black cars or this moment here where David steps onto the concourse and is surrounded by literally hundreds of people who are chasing him, crowding him to get close to him. And I'm like, what is this existence now? You know, and and David's the second most famous person in that stadium, by the way. Paul, it's actually hard to compare because Beckham transcended sports. So you you didn't need to be a soccer fan to know who that was. This is different because I just think 16 years later, social media, the presence of that, the Latin American world is all over this. There's also the ticket prices, the promotion stuff, the advertisement. What have you seen through all that? Because it used to be $35 was the average ticket price. Now it's $350 to see Inter-Miami. Paul, I don't think I expected that. No, I mean, it's more expensive to park at a messy game than it used to be <laughs> to get into a messy game. It's like $50 parking everywhere you go. I think what's what surprised me most about that is that Messi's delivered on it, right? Like, no, I, there hasn't been one game that I've gone to where the people who paid to get the Messi show didn't get the Messi show. I mean, like everyone in Dallas, like that free kick, it paid for what you came to see, right? And two goals in the previous two games as well. And obviously the Cruz Azul free kick. I mean, the guy knows how to put on a show and he you can see that he knows it too. He's competitive. We saw it against Orlando where they, I loved they, it. they got him angry and you got angry Messi that came out. Yep. Before that, I thought it was like, I'm happy Messi and I'm going to put on a show. Like the first game, Cruz Azul, he wanted to score a goal. Like the goal that they called back against Joseph Martinez that Messi played him the ball. Messi held that ball for like an extra 10 seconds to think like, can I sneak this in as my first goal? And it's like, uh -huh. all right, I'll play Joseph. He's like in 10 yards of space in the box alone. And even the comments in my story are changing now where people are saying like, yeah, I'll admit it, man. I'm tuning in every week to see what Messi does because he's making you. He is making it worth it. He's making everyone in every city say, all right, yeah, I think I might have to shell out a couple hundred bucks to see what Messi's going to do in this game. Paul, he delivers when the expectation level's there. If someone paid $3,200 to get into Toyota Stadium for the Messi game, they've got lifetime memories. They were there. The other part, Paul, that nobody's talking about is every seat in these MLS stadiums, you see him. You experience him. You're not in the nosebleeds. You're literally on top of it. You're getting firsthand experience. And that's what Tata Martino told me. And he said, everyone here is going to see it, feel it, and taste it. And now I know what he meant because look at the goal against Cruz Azul. He celebrated with his kids. And yet he's doing it with a smile on his face, Paul. It, it, it's led me to like, I think what's been interesting for me being on the road for this whole thing and seeing every game unfold is it has me thinking about what does this mean for MLS? Like, yes. how does this change the way you think about where MLS can go? And the hard part is that like Messi is not replicable. Like there is no next Messi. Like even if you went and got Neymar, like Neymar is not Messi. And so you can't really like match what Miami has done. The relevance that he's brought is higher than I expected it. It's, it's more oh, than Zlatan. Lord. It's more than Beckham. It, he is making people tune in at a much higher clip than I think anyone expected. And I think it's going to keep getting bigger if he keeps doing this. Like more people are going to be like, yeah, I got to oh, watch Paul, this. Paul, I compared it to Taylor Swift and the Eras tour. She's the sports version of that. It's one person. It's one person that's going on tour and literally everyone is paying attention to it. I've got more people in the sports world that have never watched an MLS game buying Apple TV and literally watching every single moment and then texting me in the moment. 
as if they've been you and I for 27 years of Major League Soccer. That's the power of Messi. Yeah, I think so. I mean, and for me, you can't replicate Messi, but you can start to be ambitious in who you're targeting to sign. And I and, and in some ways, I think like the Saudi League has changed that equation a little bit. You can't get the best players out of Europe because they want to win Champions League. And now we're seeing a lot of good players go to Saudi. I think if there is a movement that I would be more worthwhile than ever, it's let's push our investment forward even more now. And it's hard to say that. It's easy for me to say that because it's not my money. The ROI, you know, I understand that there's a lot of math that goes into these decisions for Major League Soccer. But I think at one point, we're at this point in the chicken and the egg conversation of like, what can we do to pull in more audience? Well, you've got one person doing it for you on his own right now. He's starting to bring in eyeballs that never would have been an MLS. So let's capture them. Let's find ways to keep them. And and I think you have to look at the, the length of Messi's contract running right into the 2026 World Cup as this runway to have people paying attention to your league and and buzzing about it and saying, okay, we didn't understand where this league is and where it's going. Now, we'll see what happens with MLS. It's very difficult to put major changes on the docket, the way that the ownership structure works, the product strategy committee, all those things. But certainly after the last four games and the impact that Messi's had on audience, I think it has to open up conversations about what is the best way to keep these people here and to close the gap as much as we possibly can with the best leagues in the world in this window and to use 2026 as the springboard. And and again, people have, have yelled at me before about being too negative about MLS and its roster rules and all that. Following Messi around, being at all these games, it really is starting to feel like something completely different than anything I've experienced. And it, it, it is this unique opportunity, I think, for Major League Soccer. And I think it's an awesome segue to where it's happening and how it's happening. It's in League's Cup, Paul. And I think in order for the league to bridge that gap that you're talking about, they need to make sure they're better than League MX. They need to make sure that they are the number one league on this continent. But from you following Messi in League's Cup, has League's Cup surprised you at all? and how good it's been games-wise and competitive nature of it, for lack of a better phrase. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the knockout phases especially. I mean, I think that's what we've learned about the sport in this country and MLS. Like, the best games that we tune into are the playoff games, right? The the intensity goes up, the stakes go up, and and we've had some crazy intense playoff games in Major League Soccer, and the League's Cup knockout games are giving us a lot of that. And it's going to be an interesting transition to go from these knockout games to August 20th when he's back in regular season play for the first time. And can it match that level of intensity? Will it have those stakes to it? I think that certainly has helped. And it goes back to that conversation of growth, of of trying to be the best league in North America, trying to be better than Liga Mekis, is the Club World Cup in 2025. Messi's two wins away from qualifying for the CONCACAF Champions Cup. If they win that tournament, Messi and co. are in the Club World Cup. Now you're putting Seattle and your best teams up against the best teams in the world. MLS really needs to close the gap before that tournament because they're going to get a stage unlike they've ever gotten before. So all of this stuff is linked. Like League's Cup is giving MLS an opportunity to put its best teams potentially up into the Club World Cup in 2025. And the more we get to see MLS teams against the best in League MX, the best in the world, I think the more incentive there is to grow this league. And I think the more opportunity to grow the audience and to close the perception gap, what I always call it, of like what the casual fan thinks MLS is and what it actually is now. 
Yep, I agree. Paul, we got to go. Messi wants uh, a salad on the size of his Cubano sandwich. So you grab the sandwich, I'll grab the salad, or or do you want me to do vice versa? What do you want to do? No, I'll I'll, I'll go to the salad shop. I need to lose a few, so I I don't want to be near the Cubanos. (laughs) (laughs) Paul Tenorio from The Athletic. Good seeing you, dude. I'll see you soon. Thanks, Taylor. Now, for topic number two, naturally, it has to be the U.S. women's national team. This was about 12 hours before Messi's game in Frisco, Texas. And listen, I get it. I know what all of you are thinking. They played their best game of the tournament. No doubt in my mind they did. They still lost. And I get it. It was by a mere millimeter in the penalty kick shootout. But this is the earliest World Cup exit in team history. It was a 5-4 loss on penalties to Sweden. Now they dominated most of the game. Anyone that watched the game, your eyes weren't lying to you. And if you didn't watch the game, I'm going to lead you through it. They had 11 shots on target, 22 total shots. Sweden only had one shot on target to nine total shots. They struggled to score goals throughout the entire tournament. They didn't score in the last 248 consecutive minutes of play. Now, some of you are going to say, well, yeah, Taylor, they had four goals all of World Cup. Sure, that's fine. But three of those were in the opener against Vietnam. Now, what went wrong? I think a lot went wrong. What could they have done differently? Well, first off, you got to ask the manager. But last week with Rebecca Lowe, I said it. I think this is the kind of loss that the U.S. women need. Remember, it was 2011. Carly Lloyd missed a penalty that led to the United States losing to Japan. What happened four years later? She scored a hat trick against Japan in the World Cup final in 2015 that would end up being the first of back-to-back World Cup trophies. Now, can the younger generation follow a similar path? Sophia Smith, Trinity Rodman, and company? I think so. I think that's the hope. Or is the rest of the world catching up? And that's where my mind is. There is so much here to process, which is why I need help to get through this. Meg Linehan, senior writer at The Athletic, she's joining us from down under. Let's talk to Meg. Meg, I know you're in Melbourne, so I appreciate you taking the time. You're about 75 hours ahead of us, so thank you for joining us today. Let's get right into it. I thought your article was fantastic on The Athletic. It was written basically two hours after the United States bombed out of the World Cup. The last podcast, I had Rebecca Lowe on. Rebecca and I had a great conversation about analyzing men versus women. She wants to be critiqued and analyzed the same way Mike Tirico is on Sunday Night Football and the Olympics. And I said, that's fine, but it's not really the case Because I've been told from many of these players, Hope Solo, Carly Lloyd, this older generation, Taylor, why don't you critique us the same way? And I said, I will. I I have absolutely no issue with it. I think women want the same kind of treatment. Well, I gave it that over 24 hours after the United States women bombed out of the World Cup. Meg, I'm called a bigot that I can't analyze on women. That makes no sense to me, Meg, because here's the other thing. Doris Burke's one of the best analysts in the NBA. So if I can't critique the women, why can she critique the men? Meg, I'm so confused by this topic. I don't get it. Yeah. So I want to I want to start with we don't need to get into a history of sexism yep. in the U.S. But the, the problem is, is that we are still operating 
in this world where there are unreasonable standards put on women, right? Mm -hmm. And we have reached this very reductive way of talking about things specifically when it relates to gender. So I think that there is such vitriol and sexism and racism and homophobia. There's so much stuff happening around. So when you get a voice that's just trying to offer a critique, I think there is a knee-jerk reaction from a lot of people of just being like, leave them alone, right? Like the old Britney, leave Britney Spears alone meme, right? Of just this kind of defensive, protective situation that's happening. The problem is we have to get so many steps to a point where an honest critique is simply just an honest critique, especially around this team. Like the sense that this team is being called political when that was really the 2019 squad. I mean, Rapino is obviously still on this team, but like... Right, but Meg, hold wait, on wait. though. Isn't this group the group that it was a big part of the lawsuit? $20 million yeah, plus, Yes and right? no, but also Sophia Smith is not, right? Like, Fair. Sophia Smith is not a part of that group. Fair, but that so lawsuit have, was after 2019. So yeah. the natural inclination for yeah. anyone, right, is that, oh, this was this generation. I get what you're saying. A lot of the yeah. 19 team is the reason why they went to it, which, by the way, right. they were correct to do so. Yeah, and also they won, right? Like, Bingo. they were big political outspoken, and they won. So it the argument actually falls apart if you try to actually apply logic to it and that's the thing is you can't actually try to like bring a rational conversation into a lot of these spaces. So it's you just kind of avoid them. It's fine. But I, I think to your point, like there is a real challenge here of having an honest discussion about why players might be doing something or why they might be speaking out on something that quickly loses that actual like rational yes. human to human conversation and your point about Doris Burke, right? Like, I have so much respect for her. Me too. But I also, I feel like every time she calls a game, I'm from Boston, I watch the Celtics, yep. right? Every time she's on a Celtics game, it's just a sea of dudes on Twitter. No doubt. Hating her, hating her voice, hating the way she, like, you can tune it out, but also that is still in the back of everybody's head, especially for women, when they're trying to have a conversation about this team. So I think it does get into this, like, knee-jerk no, not for you. <laughs> yeah. Right? Not for you. And that, but I think that's fair in a like, I think it's understandable. I don't know if it's fair. I think it's understandable. Yeah. But, and, Meg, but Meg, like, honestly, if I saw Messi or an Mbappe before the Men's World Cup dancing the way the former World Cup champions, the reason why I critiqued the dancing into that, dude, you're two-time world champions. You don't need to bring the extra attention to you. And if you do, you better deliver. Yeah. This team was not good. That's all I'm talking about. Yeah. And then, like, this team was not good is a fair criticism, but I have seen other comments. Oh, no doubt. Right. And I'm, I'm talking about, like, on broadcast, like, where it is implied, like, Crystal Dunn doesn't know how to play soccer. And it's like, no, Crystal Dunn is literally, like, one of the best players this country has yep. ever produced but she is not being set up to succeed, right? And so there's a difference between those two comments of the team isn't good, but like, wh why isn't the team good, right? And so again, like you have to unpack all those layers, but that, that to me is really one of the struggles of covering this team is trying to have that nuanced conversation and say like, listen, Vlako Andonovsky was not the right coach for this team. He's still honestly like a really good dude. And I don't, I'm not going to go into a press conference and start screaming at him, yep. right? 
can I have honest, terrible feedback for him? Yeah. Like you made extremely dumb decisions in this world. Unbelievably. <laughs> right. But also, that to me, do I still fundamentally think he's a good coach in certain situations? Yes, I do. Like, honestly, I think if he goes back to the NWL, he's going to be fine. But this is the new reality of women's soccer is that the world has caught up and the world has caught up despite there being so many big systemic barriers across so many other countries. Nigeria held their own with England for 120 minutes and only fell in penalty kicks. It's only going to get harder from here. We were the ones who set the standard. The standard has now been raised on us. How do we keep not only Mm -hmm. current with that standard, but push ourselves back ahead? And that's the big work that has to happen. That's that's the new mission. I, I find this World Cup to be exactly that. But I feel like United States Soccer Federation may not understand what that means. Am I wrong? I don't think you are. I think we really saw in this World Cup for the U.S. that tactics oh, yeah. were not there, right? Mm-hmm. Like they simply were not there. And there's going to be, obviously, you know, I think Vlako Andonovsky is done as head coach. I, I, my question is, Kate, is Kate Markgraf out as general manager, right? Are we going to get like a big program overhaul, which I think has to happen because I think there is so much movement from other countries that yep. we have fallen behind on that standpoint. And what I think has been really interesting is talking with someone like Michael Cox from The Athletic, right? Yes. From a UK point of view, where his drumbeat for a while has been, the U.S. has no actual, like, footballing identity. It's true. We are just, like, American. Like, we've got it. Like, yep. we're going to... And fitness was really a thing that carried, especially the U.S. women's national team, through big-time performances, where they could just outplay people for 90 minutes, 120 minutes, and get a result. And again, those days are gone. Good thing, right? Good thing for the game. And we had such an advantage on the women's side for a really long time because we were investing in a way that no one else was because the the college game was so strong countries used to send players here to play yep. college ball that's not happening anymore yep. done those days are long gone right so there is going to have to be a cultural shift of how do you build like a homegrown system here it does not exist on the women's side yet we don't have development academies the entire system of youth soccer is not built in a way to like, no, but it's, make it's it built so, on money. Make it so important that you say that because my concern from the United States Soccer Federation now on the women's side is just blaming all of it on Flacco. But I think this is systemic. I don't yes. think it's all on them. I don't think if he plays three five two and makes more subs, all of a sudden it covers up the fact that developing right. players and the mindsets yes. of these players I think the world's caught up to him. I really do. Yeah, I mean, I I think honestly having that idea that we're superior just because of the legacy of the U.S. Women's National Team is honestly a a dangerous concept for this country at this point, too. I think there's a lot to be excited about the 2024 Olympics and 2027 World Cup for the U.S. Women's National Team because really at the heart of it, the core of young talent that is coming up through this team is really good. Like Naomi Gurma had the most perfect World Cup you could ask for a center defender mm-hmm. who was not necessarily a starter on this team before the World Cup. Like, she has cemented her place on this U.S. Women's National Team. We're going to have a player like Katerina Macario come back from injury, right, for the next couple of tournaments. There is so much to be excited about, but 
that can't be viewed Agreed. in isolation. Like it ha- you have to widen out to the system. And so again, to the to the role of the NWSL, to the role of youth soccer, it, there's so many Meg, moving pieces systemic. to it. It's systemic. It's it's literally yeah. not one yep. facet of the game. It's not tactics. Right. It's, it's not any of that. Right. And so they've got yes. to be very careful with that. I'm going to end it with this so you can get on your 17-hour flight back to Vermont. <laughs> you seem to be, in your article on The Athletic, a little optimistic that there's a path forward. Tell me what it is. Yeah, I mean, it's the path forward is just like a complete program overhaul, right? And and thinking about how, honestly, I think our national approach to sports mm-hmm. is not going to work in football. This is all only going to get harder moving yeah. forward. But the thing is, we have talented, talented players in this country. And we have the core of a team that is extremely talented right now. The question is how you build around that senior national team, how you build around a program of women's soccer in the U.S. that meaningfully, like, really looks at how we ID, develop, build players into true footballers because that has not been one of our best projects for the past. But, like, we kind of succeed despite ourselves sometimes on that front. Yep. I so it, it there I think there is room for optimism simply because sometimes you do kind of need to get punched in the gut in order to realize what's gone wrong for you. But like you have to kind of take your time. This is not something that we're going to have an answer to tonight, the next week, the next month. This is a years long project and we're only really going to know over the next cycle or two if they have truly figured out how do you not just set the standard but you, you were now the ones to raise it time and time again. They have not proven so far that they are equipped for that moment, but I have hope that, again, that little gut punch going to wake them up. Yep, and I also think the Summer Olympics being right around the corner, if they make the right personnel decisions, the right tactical decision, it may be a very quick turnaround for the first team, but I think systemically it is a massive, massive overhaul. Meg Linehan from The Athletic, Thank you so much for joining us. I know you have slept a total of, what, 17 hours in the last month? Yeah, you know, somewhere somewhere on that front. That makes two of us because Messi keeps scoring <laughs> goals in my sleep. Yeah. I'll see you soon, Meg. All right, thank you. Friday night, I am going to be at Drive Pink Stadium, Lionel Messi, Inter-Miami, take on Charlotte League's Cup quarterfinals. But until then, thanks for listening. We'll have you next week getting ready for the League's Cup final. I appreciate you listening, but I need you rate, review the show, and remember, you can follow us on Apple Podcast. Offside with Taylor Twelman is a Major League Soccer podcast produced by Apple TV and Rain Delay Media. Executive producers are Peter Moses and John Yales. John was our editor. Michael Janot was our engineer. Jonah Buchanan and Iggy Monda were our researchers. Music was composed by Brian Decker, and I'm your host, Taylor Twalman. Follow and listen on Apple Podcasts. This tournament is on drugs. The good kind. The good kind.